Our speaker tonight, as you know, is Dr. Aykan Erdemir, and he's a former member of the Turkish parliament, having served from 2011 to 2015. Uh, he's probably no longer there because he's very outspoken in terms of religious rights, minority rights, for which he has been recognized internationally. Uh, he's a founding member of the International Pal Panel of Parliamentarians for Freedom of Religion or Belief. You've seen his, his introduction uh, or his bio, so I'll keep this brief, leaving him more time to speak, simply that after completing his BA in International Relations at Bill Kent University, Ankara, uh, Dr. Erdemir received an MA in Middle Eastern Studies and a PhD in Anthropology and Middle Eastern Studies from Harvard University. He's edited seven books. He's written countless articles, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post. I hope you all saw his piece in The Washington Post yesterday. Uh, if not, uh, look at your email because Westminster sent it out to everyone. He's also the co-author of a 2016 book, Antagonistic Tolerance, Competitive Sharing of Religious Sites and Spaces. Uh, today he'll be speaking on how Erdogan consolidates power, the weaponization of Turkish media, and the scapegoating of minorities. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Erdogan. Thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, I will try to, both as a former politician and as a former academic, I will try to keep my statements brief, which is a challenge, given my former hats. Uh, but I do want to make sure that we have time for Q&A. I, I simply want to get a, a key point through and then see where that leads us in terms of discussing the state of uh, rights and freedoms, and more particularly uh, minority rights and religious freedoms um, in today's challenging world. Now, my talk will be in five sections, no worries, short sections. The first part is just to explain to you how Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, came to control Turkey's media and what that control looks like, feels like. Second part is how Erdogan mouthpiece media uh, carries out smear campaigns and incitement targeting religious minorities in Turkey. The third part is about the consequences of that. Uh, I've always argued that incitement matters. It has consequences. And I will try to show to you that media incitement has led to attacks against religious minorities in Turkey, that it has real-life consequences. Then in the fourth section, I will uh, try to demonstrate through the case of Pastor Andrew Brunson, who is making headlines for at least the last two years, but at least uh, more recently for last week, uh, to show how Pastor Brunson was smeared, framed in Turkish media, and thereby denied a fair trial. And then, uh, in conclusion, I will, after a few overall remarks, I will try to end with a few concrete policy recommendations. 
because ultimately the reason why we, in addition to commiserating about the state of global affairs, uh, we hopefully we will have some response, policy response, whether it's at the state level, whether it's at the advocacy level or at the individual level. So without further ado, let me start my first section. Uh, very briefly, how Erdogan came to control Turkey's media. Uh, as of this spring, that is right before Turkey's snap elections, Erdogan, with his latest grab of independent media, came to control 21 of the 29 newspapers, dailies in Turkey, which gave him 90% of the national circulation. Probably that figure is now close to 95%. So imagine a Turkish citizen has 90 to 95% likelihood that he or she will be reading news from not only pro-Erdogan, but Erdogan mouthpiece media. This is either directly owned or controlled by him or his relatives and in-laws, or through his cronies. Second, using emergency decrees, and under the pretext of combating terrorism, Erdogan shuttered, just to give you one figure, 177 media outlets within five months in the aftermath of the abortive coup of 2016 in Turkey. Another figure, uh, since he came to power, Erdogan has imprisoned 535 journalists in Turkey, making Turkey the world's top jailer of journalists, not only in 2016, but also 2017. And add to that self-censorship. So if there are still independent outlets left, journalists fear for their life, for their safety, uh, for their freedom. They don't want to be harassed. They don't want to be imprisoned. They don't want to be fined. Erdogan takes all journalists uh, with these ludicrous libel uh, kind of cases to court. Uh, and uh, I think the take-home message of the first section is, although we assume Iran, China, North Korea, you know, Venezuela, other authoritarian countries have the worst track record in media freedoms, and although we assume Turkey as a NATO member should be doing better, the numbers tell a different story. Turkey is, unfortunately, at the very bottom of media freedoms in the world at least in 2016 and 2017. And unfortunately, 2018 will not be any better. Now, my second part. Uh, how smear campaigns and incitement targeting minorities uh, take place in Erdogan's mouthpiece media. What kind of uh, incitement am I talking about? Uh, I have picked for you some of the best-offs, or you might call them worst-offs. Uh, for example, pro-AKP Yeni Asr Daily uh, insisted after the coup, after the abortive coup, that the coup's alleged mastermind, Fethullah Gülen, a, a Sun Turkish Sunni cleric who's in self-imposed exile in the US now and who Turkey wants to extradite, uh, 
so the daily argued that he had a Jewish mother, an Armenian father, and was a member of the Catholic clerical hierarchy. <laughs> now, to us, this sounds like science fiction. But in Turkey, it was just an opportunity to smear a number of religious communities. It's like hitting three birds with one stone. Because the average Turkish reader, after reading this, would say that, oh, the mastermind behind the coup, it's not only that he was an evil man, but clearly he's Jewish, Armenian, Catholic, just like you know, they always are. You know. Religious minorities, they're always after us, either abroad or as fifth columns among us. Takvim, another pro-government daily, published a fabricated, photoshopped Vatican passport to demonstrate, in quotes, that Fethullah Gülen was in fact a Catholic cardinal. <laughs> so they took the passport of a Catholic cardinal, just changed the photo and the name, and turned him into a Catholic cardinal. Third, another daily, Aksham, uh, pointed the finger, this time, to, the, to Turkey's ecumenical patriarch, the Greek Orthodox patriarch, and slandered him for plotting the abortive coup, guess with whom? With the CIA echoing a letter, which we now know was fabricated by Russians and falsely attributed to a US ambassador and then widely circulated on social media by Russian trolls. We know it was fake, but it doesn't matter for Erdogan's loyal followers who read this media outlet. They thought it was CIA and the ecumenical patriarch working together to plot the coup. And then another columnist at, again, pro-government Star Daily claimed that coup plotters at the highest level were hiding, guess where? He said, in churches. Now, I would argue this is, you know, we laugh at these, you know, really ludicrous accusations, smears, but it's no laughing matter. Why? Because such smear campaigns, such direct or indirect incitement um, has consequences. Again, especially when it comes to the safety and freedom of religious minorities in Turkey. Just to show you how it played out. Right after the coup, abortive coup, uh, there were immediate attacks against churches in Trabzon, a Black Sea town, eastern Black Sea town city, and Malatya, a central Anatolian city. And these two cities were not random. They picked because they were cities which were scenes of lethal attacks against Christians only a decade ago. <coughs> Again, days after the failed coup attempt, for example, mobs attacked the gates of St. Maria Catholic Church in Trabzon, with hammers breaking the church's windows. An Alevi worship hall in Istanbul was attacked. Alevis are the largest non-Sunni Muslim minority in Turkey. And then Alevi homes in Malatya were the next target. An Armenian high school 
in Istanbul was vandalized the next month. And in the eastern Turkish province near the Syrian border uh, of Gaziantep, the province of Gaziantep, Christian tourists were harassed by some of the locals. Then this past Friday, February, sorry, this past February, the St. Maria Church in the Black Sea town of Trabzon was once again targeted, which shows you there is culture of impunity. There can be repeat attacks. And this time with an incendiary device that damaged the church's front door a day ahead of the anniversary of the 2006 assassination of the church's then priest, Andrea Santoro. So I think sent, they were sending a very clear message. Like on the anniversary of the murder of the priest, they were sending the message that they can do it again with impunity. And then a month later in March, a lone gunman fired a shot through the same church's window, thus perpetrating the fifth confirmed attack against the church since Father Santoro's assassination. Now, I would like to focus on the case of American pastor Andrew Brunson, because I think his case epitomizes some of the key challenges uh, religious minorities have had in Turkey. Uh, just to give you the, the background, you, know, you, you, you might wonder, how is it that uh, the Turkish government picked on you know, an evangelical Presbyterian pastor who has lived and uh, served peacefully in Turkey for over 20 years, despite being targeted by uh, an Islamist attack earlier on? You know, he, he chose not to leave Turkey after an attempt, an earlier attempt on his life, and he continued to live and serve uh, in Izmir. So how, wh why would a government target such a person? And part of it has to do with uh, Turkey's historiography, which is across the political spectrum. There is, you know, in a deeply polarized society, there is firm belief that what brought down the Ottoman Empire was not its own failures, its corrupt leadership, its dysfunctional political system, its oppressive political structure. They believe it was Western machinations. They believe it was scheming on the part of Jews and Christians. They believed it was first and foremost missionaries, more importantly, American missionaries. And it, it, there's almost a firm belief that it, it was Protestant missionaries through their outreach to what they believe fifth columns, religious minorities in Turkey. So every time you put an American citizen, a Protestant, and a missionary together in one sentence, it rings all the alarm bells because it hits all the, the bigoted buttons, all the prejudicial buttons uh, of a Turkish citizen inculcated with all this hate over the years in schools, during military service, at workplaces, uh, on uh, state-run media, on pro-government media, um, in family circles, in coffee houses. So it, it becomes a truism of some sort. Now let's focus on how Erdogan's pro-government media 
contributed to, how it fueled some of these uh, smears, prejudices against Pastor Brunson. Uh, following his detention in Turkey, you know, he spent two years in prison in Turkey. Again, pro-government Takvim Daily claimed that, please don't laugh, the pastor would have become the next director of the CIA had he been successful in helping to coordinate the attempted coup against Erdogan. Then, September 2017, in a story titled The Pastor's Bomb, this was on the the, the front page of a pro Erdogan daily, you know, at the very top, Takvim daily. They similarly accused the CIA of masterminding the bomb attack against a shuttle bus carrying guards of the prison where Pastor Brunson was held, calling Brunson a CIA agent once again, and dubbing the attack, quote, a message from the CIA to the Turkish government. So they were basically implying that Pastor Brunson was behind the bombing. And the pastor was lucky because this never ended up in his indictment. You know, there was a 62-page indictment, which I published about in the World Magazine. What's called the, the title of my piece is the, the, the Brunson farce, because the indictment itself is a farcical indictment. 62 pages, not a single concrete piece of evidence based on secret witness testimony. And for example, some of the evidence presented against the pastor is the video of a Middle Eastern dish sent to him, which they claim ties him to a ter terrorist organization. The color of a scarf worn by a young man who happened to be standing behind the pastor in a photo sent to the pastor because the scarf was red, green, and yellow. They said these are the Kurdish colors, hence the pastor must be a member of the designated terrorist organization, PKK. So this is the kind of evidence brought against the pastor. And then again, December 2017, in a, another pro-AKP daily Yenasr, there was a story where they called uh, FETÖ, this is the Fethullahis terrorist organization. Um, Turkey designated the network of Fethullah Gülen, the Sunni cleric who is now uh, in self-imposed exile in the US. FETÖ, that, uh, that's the term used. So it says, FETÖ's pastor turns out to be a fake. And they asserted that Brunson, first, was not a real pastor, that his documents were fake, that he operated as a spy, and that he funded PKK sympathizers in the United States, that he received monthly payments from a US-based foundation linked to FETÖ, and that he praised Fethullah Gülen in his sermons in Izmir. So again, science fiction. Furthermore, Turkey's state-run media, you know, this is media funded by Turkish taxpayers, has also been culpable uh, in fueling hate speech against religious minorities, creating a toxic environment, which affected not only Pastor Brunson and his case, but all other religious minorities. And uh, the, the, the drama, this, is, this was one of the most popular dramas historically ever in Turkey, called The Last Emperor. You can actually 
find it on YouTube, but I wouldn't recommend uh, to you know, help them earn yet another click <laughs> and therefore revenue from it. In Turkish, it's called Payitaht Abdülhamid. And it's, it's a quote-unquote historical drama about uh, one of Erdogan's most favorite Ottoman sultans, Abdülhamid II, known as the sultan who kind of institutionalized pan-Islamism to a great extent and hence revered by Turkey's Islamists today. And the drama pins all the blame for the downfall of the Ottoman Empire on Christians, Jews, and the, the fifth columns, that is, religious minorities in Turkey. And again, just to uh, show to you how it leads to real life, it has real life consequences, what I did is after each episode was aired, we checked social media to see what kind of an impact it has on Turkish viewers. I'll just give you two examples. One Twitter user, after watching the state-funded drama, vowed to turn the territory between the Euphrates and Nile rivers into Jewish graveyards. Another Twitter user, after watching the drama, said, quote, the more I watch The Last Emperor, the more my enmity to Jews increases. You infidels, you filthy creatures. Now, often, you know, as scholars, policymakers, analysts, we try to make the connection between incitement and, you know, and real life consequences. But here we have concrete examples as Turkish citizens confess on social media that watching the drama, watching a state-funded drama on state-run TV station has this effect, has the effect that they now want to kill Jews, kill Christians, commit massacres, you know, turn an entire Middle Eastern geography into graveyards. Now, what are some of the take-home messages from this worrying picture? Uh, and I'm not talking about the Islamic State. You know, I'm not talking about Al-Qaeda-run uh, country. I'm not talking about a Taliban-run parts of Afghanistan. I'm talking about a NATO ally, Turkey. First, clearly Erdogan's media empire and his weaponization of the media has allowed him to dismantle Turkey's democratic secular order and institute his kind of one-man regime, authoritarian regime. So that was the first step. Media helps authoritarian Islamist leaders consolidate power at home. But it doesn't end there. The second, I think, um, result is that having secured near total control at home, uh, a strong man like Erdogan then refocuses his attention on challenging the Western-led liberal order, what he has earlier in his career called as the Judeo-Christian civilization, what he has again earlier called as an immoral kind of value system. And he not only sees this as a threat to his own regime at home, 
but he also would like to challenge it globally, including and maybe beginning first with the diaspora. Erdogan has a lot of outreach attempts to Turkish diaspora in the West, particularly in the European Union. But then at the same time, he has designs much larger than that. And we have seen under Erdogan's rule, Turkey emerging as a key funder of different types of radicals. In fact, during the Syrian civil war, to bring about a quick regime change in Syria, we have seen numerous instances of Turkey turning a blind eye to jihadists crossing through Turkey. But not only that, we have seen uh, Erdogan's Turkey providing logistical support, arms, ammunition, and finances to jihadists as well. And a prediction about what the future might bring. Um, thus, you know, Turkey, though nominally a, a NATO ally, must be understood to have weaponized its media in much the same way as Erdogan's fellow autocrats have done so in Iran and in Russia, as a tool of domestic intimidation as well as international influence. And let me end with a couple of policy recommendations. Now that Erdogan has destroyed Turkey's independent media, now that it's almost impossible for Turkey's pro-secular, pro-rights and religious freedoms, pro-West, pro-NATO intellectuals, academics, journalists to make their voices heard, what can we do to help them? First, it's really imperative, it's I think a moral imperative for us to reach out to both independent media outlets as well as critical, remaining few critical journalists um, to offer them moral support, material support, uh, provide them, help them gain visibility and legitimacy, uh, help uh, their voice be heard in Turkey as well as around the world. And a second strategy could be, given how suffocating it is for journalists and media outlets uh, it is in Turkey, uh, also work with the Turkish diaspora. Because increasingly, uh, Turkey's uh, pro-secular, pro-democratic, uh, pro-NATO kind of voices are either in self-imposed exile in abroad, especially in the West, or in Erdogan-imposed exile. And uh, there are numerous academics, journalists, you know, public intellectuals uh, who would love to do something to advocate for rights and freedoms in Turkey, for separation of mosque and state in Turkey, for uh, enshrining religious freedoms and minority rights in Turkey, but simply they do not have the means, the outlets, the institutions. I think it, it's, again, imperative that we work with uh, diaspora communities uh, to see what, how we can work with them as they continue the good fight in the EU, in the US, in Canada, in Australia, you know, where they can still enjoy their 
First Amendment rights, where they can still enjoy their uh, freedom of conscience and uh, freedom of expression. Uh, let me end here uh, without taking any more time, uh, but I would be happy to take your questions, comments, criticism, all welcome. And you swept over the breakup of the Ottoman Empire very quickly. But isn't it fair to say that there's a certain kind of Western, maybe Calvinist, maybe liberal uh, push to get rid of the Ottoman Empire and that it didn't just collapse from within? Now, it, as with most empires, you know, there are domestic, internal and external factors leading to their collapse. Uh, and uh, picking, prioritizing just one explanation, reducing it down to one explanation, can conveniently serve uh, to, let's say, um, exonerate um, the corruption, um, the short-sightedness uh, and incompetence uh, of the political elite. We are seeing it today as well. For example, Turkey is going through one of the worst economic crises in its history, um, and Erdogan has put the blame on the US, on Pastor Brunson. He has said that there's an economic war waged by the US, and so he, he wants to hear none of his own corruption, greed, mismanagement, uh, destructive policies. Um, is it true? that the Ottomans, in addition to mismanagement at home, had adversaries? Sure, just like the Austria-Hungarian Empire had, just like the British Empire had, just like the European Union today has, or the United States has. Uh, but if the United States or the European Union now only puts the entire blame on Russia or China, they would be wrong. Right? Because there are clearly uh, shortcomings from within. Uh, and I think the Western political tradition um, is quite unique in its emphasis on uh, criticism, on its emphasis on, you know, through freedom of expression, on our ability to, you know, to say, mea culpa, you know, we've done wrong and we are responsible. I think it's, it's First and foremost, being adult about something, you know, taking responsibility uh, for our shortcomings, uh, for our mistakes. But unfortunately, the, the, the historiography I have talked about uh, is one of whitewashing. Uh, I, I'm not against, um, I'm, I'm not advocating disregarding all external factors. I'm simply saying, um, let's, uh, you know, hold a mirror. Uh, to our shortcomings uh, as former subjects of the Ottoman Empire and as current citizens of the Turkish Republic. Alexis Zachenko, can you? Yes. No affiliation. Uh, I would like to go back to more recent history, uh, specifically Mr. Khashoggi's case. The more we learn about him, the more we understand that he was not what he was usually portrayed, not democracy-loving pro-Western journalist, that he was he met Mr. Bin Laden a number of times. He was in the going between uh, Saudi government and the various fundamentalist jihadist groups. Uh, given the fact that Turkey and Qatar 
on one side and Saudi Arabia and Egypt buy for leadership in the Sunni world, uh, could it be that uh, the whole story with the Khashoggi, we don't know what happened to him, but the, all that we know about him is presented by Turkish government. Could it be uh, a plot to get the United States involved on side of Turkey against Saudi Arabia? Now, there, there's still some fog of war concerning the Khashoggi case. Uh, my guess at this point is that uh, he was murdered uh, by uh, the Saudi team, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I think time will tell. Uh, and the fact that he might have had some shortcomings as a journalist or in his politics, of course, does not you know, um, legitimize uh, his brutal murder. Uh, and um, it, it is true uh, that the Turkish, Turkey's pro-government media has extremely little credibility when it comes to these leaks because ultimately it is, a, to say the least, hypocritical for Erdogan today to be the kind of the bearer of media freedoms in the Kashyyyk case. You know, he, after having jailed 535 journalists in his career, you know, hitting rock bottom when it comes to media freedoms, you know, now through the very same outlets that I've just presented to you, that, that has, you know, egregiously targeted, smeared people, uh, incited against religious minorities. Now they are defending the rights of this one journalist. Certainly, he deserves to be defended. Uh, his rights deserve to be defended, but uh, not by this uh, kind of government mouthpiece uh, incitement outlets. Um, now, my a different take on the Kashyyyk case would be this. Um, you might have realized that Erdogan himself and his inner circle uh, have been quite silent. They were very balanced, very reserved. So they drip-fed pro-government media, increased pressure gradually, I believe, to extract concessions from Saudi Arabia. It's, it's not in Erdogan's interest to defend media freedoms or the sanctity of life. I think it's in his interest to extract some economic gains from Saudi Arabia at a t during the time of an economic downturn, to extract concessions concerning the Saudi blockade of Qatar, uh, potentially to extract some other diplomatic concessions concerning this battle between you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the UAE, and you know, Qatar, Turkey, Hamas, and the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so um, there is more to this story than meets the eye. And unfortunately, when we see what's behind, what's being discussed behind closed doors, it's not about you know, the sanctity of life. It's not about media freedoms. Uh, it's not about democracy. It's about, you know, uh, it's, it's like uh, the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul, and you know, it's like a carpet sale. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, do you think that the EU contributed to, in somehow indirectly, to the situation where Turkey is now by 
I mean, they've been against or rejecting having Turkey joining the EU. This is for years, even before Erdogan. And this indirectly created the, the, the tip for tax reaction, which is we don't want us then we don't want them back. We're going to clinch back to our identity, our... And then again, Erdogan, I'm sure he used this to his advantage by saying that we have our own religious identity and we, see, I mean, as if they are refusing us, then we don't want them back and we're going to, I mean, use this, he used this uh, political situation to his advantage. Do you think that the EU is also responsible for where Turkey is now in terms of indirectly helping Erdogan consolidating all this power? Very important question that hits close at home on my part. First, I have to confess one of my biases. That is, I'm a Eurofederalist, a dying breed. I do believe in the widening and deepening of the European Union. Uh, but I know uh, this is the wrong time uh, to advocate such views. I was a member of Turkey's uh, European Union integration committee, I was a member of the Turkey-EU Joint Parliamentary Committee, have done a lot of work with my European Union colleagues, and still believe that's the future. I still believe we have to incorporate the Western Balkans, we have to incorporate Turkey, uh, we have to move east, uh, because any country left out will be easy prey. Uh, for the adversaries in the East. No need to name them. Now, I argue it takes two to tango. And this was a horrible dance between Turkey and the EU because there were none to begin with. You know, there were no good faith partners in this relationship. Turkey, first and foremost, failed its homework because the European Union membership is about getting things right. It's called the Copenhagen criteria. This is the minimum standards needed. Human rights, democracy, rule of law, due process. The minimum standards needed for a country to be a member of the European Union. Now, has Turkey done its homework? No, unfortunately not. It was on the, you know, in the process, very slow and not necessarily in good faith. Has the EU fulfilled its obligations of working with, negotiating with Turkey in good faith? No. And I've seen this with my own eyes in the Turkey-EU Joint Parliamentary Committee. Quite a number of our European Union colleagues were simply there to derail the talks. They were looking for either excuses to, to block this process. And of course, Turkey was giving them a lot of ammo by not doing its part of the work. Uh, and I've always argued it takes visionaries uh, on both sides. Now, there might be skeptics here among the audience thinking, look at Turkey today. What makes you think that Turkey could be an eligible member or would be a good partner to the European Union, would, be, would uh, strengthen the Union? Uh, for that, let me take you back to 1940s, to one of my favorite quotes. Um, in the early days of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, not the European Union, this is the Council of Europe, in Strasbourg, you know, this is, you know, post-war Europe, 
still traumatized, still in the ruins. Uh, and when they were trying to put together not only a new Europe, but also a new regime, a new system of rights and freedoms, you know, coming out of the horrors of the war, uh, one of the key instruments was, of course, the Council of Europe and its parliamentary assembly. And uh, I have a journalist colleague who went into the archives and found the audio recordings of some of the earliest debates there. And there was a Turkish parliamentarian, uh, Kasım Gülek, uh, Secretary General of Turkey's pro-secular Republican People's Party, CHP, who had this historical talk there. And he said, we, I underline, we as Europeans can build a United States of Europe. And he said, I know there's history, prejudice, you know, all the weight of the past, but we can and we should. So um, there was a moment in late 1940s when Turkish parliamentarians as well as European parliamentarians saw Turkey and Europe as one. They imagined a future union in Europe. This is before the European Union. This is before the European Economic Community. This is before the European Coal and Steel Community that led to the Union. So there was a moment, maybe because of the war, that people could be visionaries. People could think beyond short-term interest. Are we there today? No. I think we are really very distant from there. Uh, most politicians don't have appetite to think of such, um, let's say, larger projects, such uh, transcendental projects. We are very much, I, I, I sometimes make fun of our fellow lawmakers as pothole politicians. We are very interested in our neighborhood and the potholes, but we're not interested uh, in the, the, the grand questions about values, peace, you know, coexistence, uh, foreign policy, security policy. Uh, and uh, I always remind people um, that uh, there's a reason why one of the seats of the European Parliament, as well as the Council of Europe, as well as the uh, European Court of Human Rights, uh, happened to be in Strasbourg. In Strasbourg, uh, there is a, a monument, a statue, uh, and that statue has a, a mother from Strasbourg uh, with two sons dead in her arms. One fought in the French army, the other fought in the German army. And I think that is uh, the, the, the historical heritage. We have to remember, re-remember. Uh, because ultimately, when you do the math, most politicians we have today have not had that experience, or it's, that's no excuse, or have not bothered to read or reflect on that experience. So I think that's our shortcoming, and that's what we need when it comes to the European Union as well. Yes. Yes. 
Well, following up on that, five year European federalism. I am also a European federalist. Ah, oh, there are two of us. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm an Atlantic Unionist. Yeah, so, same here. Um, however, I'm a skeptic on Turkey and the European Union, and I would argue the Copenhagen criteria contributed in the opposite way to encouraging Islamism because they said civilian control over the military, one of the main things, also NATO said this. And Erdogan played upon that perfectly. In reality, in the Turkish political culture, it seems to me the military were the one real check and balance that preserved the republic and uh, the mechanical application of Western cultural criteria to Turkey damaged the democracy. So you might want to deal with that argument. Uh, but constructively, what would you think of putting Turkey on a kind of probation in its NATO membership? Meaning it's still there, we still have the mutual defense obligations, but we pay a lot less attention to Turkey in reaching decisions in NATO. Uh, we make some decisions over its head if it's being ridiculous, uh, and we reduce our intelligence and other forms of exposure Yes, two very important and challenging questions. Let me begin with the first one. Uh, indeed, the European Union integration process, which should have converged Turkey's laws and regulations and practices with a key communitaire, with European Union's practices and laws and regulations, worked to the contrary. That's a fact. Meaning, European Union reform in Turkey undermined democracy rule of law, due process, and gave Erdogan one-man power. Now, uh, the, the, sure, was there a naivete on the part of some of our European Union colleagues? Yes, they didn't see what was happening. They knew Turkey needed to develop a, a democratic understanding of checks and balances, separation of powers, rule of law, but what they didn't realize, going back to your comment about the Turkish military, some of the imperfect institutions in Turkey, and I will not defend them, you know, the Turkish military, Turkish judiciary, they were imperfect, sources of many injustices, but at the same time, they were part of Turkey's imperfect polyarchy. They were counterweights. You know, I, 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 I will never defend such counterweights, but at the same time, I will never be naive enough to say, these are imperfect institutions. Let's get rid of them altogether and hope that then Erdogan will gradually build checks and balances. That's not how politics works. You know, if you want to remove some of the existing balancing forces in a very complex polity, you better go piecemeal. You better first build institutions to check and balance the abuses of Islamists, despots, you know, one-man rulers, and that's where they fail. To give you a concrete example, you know, maybe this is just too abstract. In September 2010, you know, this is my first year in active politics uh, as, a, you know, as an academic, and I was campaigning for the referendum, upcoming referendum, and this was Erdogan's one big steal. You know, together with, with his then ally, Fethullah Gülen. You know, now, Gülen is his arch enemy. In 2010, best friends, allies. <laughs> and they had one goal, winning the referendum. What was the referendum about? It was a long list of issues. 
And the European Union said, brilliant. Women's rights, children's rights, disability rights. They said, it looks perfect. So they endorsed it. And I was busy trying to explain to my well-meaning but naive European Union friends, there is only one purpose for this referendum, and that is to give the entire control of the judiciary to Erdogan and his ally Gulen. And I, we said, all the other articles, they're fillers. They don't mean a thing. And guess what happened? This is exactly what happened. Now my European Union colleagues come back to me and say, you know what, I think you were right. We were wrong. And I said, it doesn't matter, it's too late. Because Erdogan got, and Gulen uh, got control of the judiciary. You know, the constitutional court, higher courts, all the, you know, the, the regular courts. And it, he basically destroyed uh, all other institutions. So because if you control the judiciary in its entirety, uh, you can basically do whatever you want. So, yes, the European Union uh, has taken a number of mistaken steps, and instead of being a force for good, uh, facilitated Erdogan's kind of rise to power. What's the take-home message? I always say, it doesn't matter how well-meaning we are. It doesn't matter how well-sounding our uh, policy positions are. What really matters in politics uh, is the consequences, the consequences of our actions. This is what I call a, a politics of accountability, but the real accountability. I think in our contemporary politics around the world, we have replaced accountability based on consequences with intentions and um, good speak, what I call good speak. You know, if, if, if we say, say it right, and if we have good intentions, that's all that matters. I'm sorry, that's not, that's not what politics is about. Politics is whether you leave behind a genocide, whether you leave behind a destruction of a 2,000 year, years old faith and its traditions, whether, you know, these are all irreparable damages. You know, there's no way to bring back and maybe Turkish democracy is one of those victims, meaning maybe it will be extremely difficult to undo this honest mistake. Coming to the NATO question, which is very important. Now, first a reminder. You know, NATO is, to a great extent, a, a Cold War institution, a Cold War tool. And uh, it's not only a military alliance, it's a political alliance where values should be important. And during the Cold War, to be frank, I think it didn't occur to us that one of the members could be turned, could be a rogue member. It was unthinkable. So guess how NATO takes its decisions? Through unanimity. So if you have a member that's not behaving as an ally, which is a rogue or a wayward ally, guess what it takes to deal with that member? You need that member's approval. 
Not true, but I, but I can talk to you later yeah. about okay, it. Yeah, we can discuss it. I would argue that, for example, there is some debate in Washington about can we kick Turkey out of NATO? I would argue no. You know, only with Turkey's approval. approval or vote for that decision. Now, are there other ways to help members come back into the fold? Are there ways to shame, um, sanction, you know, what I call engage in a principled way with rogue allies? <coughs> Certainly, yes. I have always argued in all my politics that clear and sizable incentives and disincentives, especially when dealing with Erdogan. If you're not coming to a meeting with Erdogan with a huge stick and a huge carrot, don't bother. But if you just come with a huge carrot, that's called appeasement, good luck. He'll be a bully. You'll bring out the worst in him. If you just come with a huge stick, you'll remind him of his father, his abusive father, which he turned into. Uh, won't work. But if you, <coughs> he's a business person. Uh, he's a bazari, what the Iranians call a bazari. So, if you come with a big stick and a big carrot, he might be open for business. Just uh, yeah. for information, uh, you're absolutely right to kick Turkey out requires unanimity because it's a treaty amendment. Yeah. However, daily decisions of NATO, the council sets its own procedures. There's nothing in the treaty that requires unanimity. And it was the main author of the treaty, Theodore Achilles, who explained that to me. Everything we're told about that is legally mistaken. For NATO to change that rule would be a major change, but it could be done. I'd love to discuss that further and read further about it. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Just wanted to follow up on uh, something you brought up, and that is the relationship between the Predagon and the Ecumenical Patriarch in light of what took place last week uh, and the general relations between uh, Turkey and Russia. Uh, does uh, Turkish state have any influence over uh, the operations of the Ecumenical Patriarch and can Erdogan try to uh, curry an additional affair with Putin uh, by putting pressure in light of uh, the split that occurred last week? Great question, something I watch very closely and actually now working on a, a, a long form piece um, which hopefully will come out in the Providence magazine uh, next week. No promises, but working on it. Uh, and um, here is the deal. It's, it, it's really a very uh, complex case because, for example, a, a colleague just asked me, who doesn't follow this very closely, he said, you know, ecumenical patriarch works with Ankara, right? Because that's the assumption, you know, the seat is in Istanbul, so if you're not following things closely, you might assume the patriarch is under Ankara's influence. That is, although the seat of the patriarchate is in Istanbul, uh, it's almost like he's besieged. And it's almost like the country where he's based is working against him. Uh, and it was no coincidence that Turkey's pro-government media not only echoed but disseminated uh, a, a Russian fabrication that would not only 
undermine the patriarchate's authority, but would put Turkey's Greek Orthodox at risk of reprisal attacks by printing this, what I see as an extremely irresponsible slander. Now, I would argue it's not just because of Erdogan's own you know, Islamist and bigoted worldview. I would argue that there is an element of the Putin-Erdogan alliance at work there. Uh, and uh, it's, therefore, it's no coincidence that the source is Russian. Uh, I've heard from Russians themselves that they see the growing influence of the ecumenical patriarch uh, in the former uh, Iron Curtain countries uh, as accompanying NATO's influence. So in some of the Russian thinking today, there is the conflation of a NATO expansion with the patriarchate's expansion. And what happened in Ukraine, you know, uh, the, the ecumenical patriarch's recognition of the autocephaly of the Ukrainian church was immediately met with a threat by uh, Moscow, by the Russian uh, Orthodox patriarch. Uh, and they actually delivered. I think two to three days after they made the threat, they went forward, uh, separated, uh, from Istanbul, which some argue is the biggest schism in a thousand years, uh, but it's it's not just about you know Turkey, Ukraine, Russia. You know some of that tension uh, for those who are following Orthodox affairs in the United States. Some of that tension is also played within the Orthodox community here, uh, and you can imagine that uh, this. What happens in the United States within the Orthodox community will have major repercussions back in Istanbul as well. Because ultimately the, the issue is the ecumenical patriarch um, exists in, a, in an extremely hostile setting. You know, challenges from Russia and challenges from the Turkish state and the public uh, has only a couple of thousand members of his church in Turkey, most of whom are 70 plus, lost most of the property, uh, targeted in the media, uh, and needs the Turkish state's benevolence to simply sustain the faith and its institutions uh, because ultimately you know the ecumenical patriarch by law needs to be a Turkish citizen and that requires given there is no future to the Greek Orthodox community in Turkey that requires the Turkish state's benevolence in granting Turkish citizenship to the Greek Orthodox hierarchy of today and future because they will all, almost always will come from other countries. And given the seminary, the Halki seminary, has been closed in Turkey, there, there is no training going on. There is no theological training going on. So this is 
the surest way to kill a faith, right? This is the surest way to destroy a, a, a church, a patriarchate. And um, this, I believe, is the more sinister undertone to Erdogan's religious affairs. It's, it's a, I, I've given many talks against tolerance. I'm known to be an outspoken uh, kind of adversary of tolerance because I believe it is an insincere hierarchical imposition of uh, kind of ruler and subject relations. Erdogan's entire worldview is about tolerance, the Ottoman tolerance towards minorities and benevolence. Two terms I hate. Why? Because I believe in rights, religious freedoms, fundamental rights, inalienable human rights. Who is Erdogan to grant the ecumenical patriarchate the right to exist? Who is he that he finds himself the power to be benevolent, to allow them to continue this year, but maybe not next year? In fact, they put all of Turkey's religious minorities on the spot just over the summer by forcing them to sign a declaration and all the religious minority leaders in Turkey had to sign it, you know why. They said, we are free and we have no problems with religious freedom issues in Turkey. <laughs> to me, that was a concrete proof, evidence, that things were not right because in a country where there are religious freedoms, religious leaders, do not feel the pressure to sign such a declaration. Let me end there. Yes. I almost forgot what I was going to ask you because you I was so charged up by what you were just saying. Thank you for that. Um, I remember uh, very well the Malatya case of the three men who were murdered in the Christian bookstore. Um, was it, That was before Erdogan's time? No, during his time. Oh, okay. But it's a complex story because, just one sentence commenter there, it might have been carried out by ultra-nationalists to put the blame on the Islamists. It's, 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 but it, 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 everything blends into one another. I don't want to sound too conspiratorial, but it's Islamists and ultra-nationalists once again coming together around the issue of, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask if it was just, media incitement that was um, part of that too. I, uh, hopefully, shortly, I will have another op-ed on. I just wrote a piece uh, on the conspiracy theories that unite all Turkish citizens. Uh, Kurds and Turks, Alevis and Sunnis, left and right, secular and religious. And, uh, and that was one of the examples I gave. For example, in 2001, this is one year before Erdogan came to power, uh, back then, Erdogan's staunchest adversary, the ultra-secular National Security Council, dominated by the military, they issued a new national security memorandum, like a new strategy. And guess what they identified as a key threat? Missionaries, Christian missionaries. So this is Turkey's seculars. That's why I'm always skeptical about the military, too. So Turkey's secular, quote-unquote, secular military thought Christian missionaries were a key threat. By the way, we're talking about a country where probably there are a handful of converts. And then, again, it pains me that 
one of the deputy chairs of a center-left secular party, Democratic Left Party, Rasha Nejevit, who herself studied at an American school established by missionaries during the Ottoman times. She also said the same thing during the early 2000s. She said, I'm very concerned about the missionary threat in Turkey. And I was like, what threat? <laughs> now, so what led to Malatya is all of that, you know, years and decades of prejudice, incitement in the media, uh, singling out in a kind of in a National Security Council meeting and decisions and minutes, uh, ultra-nationalist conspiratorial gangs, what some Turks refer to as uh, deep state, as well as Islamists. Uh, and I think this is the most difficult thing to grasp about Turkey, meaning it's not just one, it's like a movie where there's not just one bad guy. Everyone is, at least from this point of view, a, a monster, meaning everyone joins in the slaughter, symbolically or physically. Now, if you confront them, they'll deny it. They'll say, of course, many of these people who have made statements against the missionaries, they'll, they'll violently, they'll say, this is horrible. They'll say, this is barbarism. But then they'll never reflect on it. They'll never think how they might have paved the way, how they might have reproduced some of those very prejudices. So this is, you know, that's, let's say, that reflexivity is the most difficult because it requires admitting to oneself that I'm not the wonderful person. I believe that I am. I am, in fact, one of the monsters, and that's very difficult. Well, Jen, I was going to ask you, uh, how was uh, Erdogan vulnerable? It seemed like the American sanctions had a disproportionate effect on the economy, and I understand part of that was attributable to the fragile nature of the banking system and the manipulation of the, of the uh, interest rate and, and the internal structure. But, there must be ways that we can influence them, as you said. What what would be the big carrots and the big sticks? Uh, and just passing comment, there's no way Turkey's going to get thrown out of NATO by any internal uh, internal organization of NATO, because in order to remove a member, that would require most, in most cases, national legislature from the various uh, parties of the treaty. Now, um... <coughs> Going back to the Erdogan question, I've always warned against appeasement. That's the worst way to engage Erdogan, and we increasingly see that. Uh, part of it is pragmatism on the part of the West. For example, the European Union, the main concern for, for now happens to be the Syrian refugee flow, and which means Erdogan can always get a carte blanche, meaning you know, uh, he will hold Europe hostage, uh, literally by holding some European Union nationals in prison, but more importantly, through the, the trump card of refugees. He has repeatedly said that, uh, when he got angry at the European Union, he said, I will bust the refugees to the European Union border, to the Bulgarian and Greek border, which shows that despite his self-righteous rhetoric, which he repeats all the time. He says, we host 3.5 to 4 million Syrian refugees. We have spent so many, so many billions. We're wonderful. 
what about the West? They're horrible, they're corrupt, they're morally bankrupt. And the next day he will say, I will bust those refugees to the European Union, as if they're like things to be, like cattle to be driven around. Now, uh, first of all, I would argue, if you enter into such morally dubious agreements with Erdogan, you'll always get the short end of the stick. So um, do not appease, do not uh, engage at that, what I would consider um, immoral, unprincipled level. Uh, he's extremely vulnerable economically. Um, I think that's where the, the big sticks and carrots should work. Uh, Turkish economy is bankrupt. Uh, it's on life support. Uh, 2019, mark my words, will be stagflation with double-digit inflation, which is already here, uh, as well as a contraction. And Erdogan, although he doesn't want to hear of the IMF, will need the, hist the world history's largest IMF bailout. 100 to 150 billion dollars next year. Uh, and there are two ways to do the bailouts. You know, they always come with strings attached. You can keep it very narrow and technical, just about the basics of the economy. You know, independent central bank, independent statistical institute, uh, semi-autonomous regulatory agencies, and a few structural reform uh, issues and full stop, or you can use the opportunity to say the reason the Turkish economy is bankrupt is because there's no separation of powers, there's no rule of law, there's no due process, there's no attorney-client privilege, there's no media freedoms, there's no religious freedoms, and you bring that, what sounds mostly political, but which also happens to be economic, issues into this agreement. Uh, and of course, if you just bring the $150 billion, like the biggest carrot we have ever seen uh, as part of the IMF and World Bank handouts, it doesn't work. You know, there has to be sticks. There has to be the, the threat of sanctions, not just the threat of sanctions, but also the imposition and implementation of sanctions. You know, every time one sees uh, egregious uh, illicit finance activity, uh, sanctions evasion. Um, for example, now Turkey, Venezuela, Iran, Russia work very closely to develop cryptocurrency, uh, to develop illicit finance networks, to find ways to evade uh, US and UN sanctions. If you give Erdogan a free pass for his transgressions, Guess what? He'll come back with a vengeance. He'll he'll do more. You know. Guess you know. For those of you who haven't watched the first round of Iran sanctions, who helped Iran evade sanctions the last time around? NATO ally Turkey. Through which institution? Halk Bank. What kind of a bank is that? Turkey's second largest public lender. It's a state-run and owned bank. Who gave the green light? Erdogan. So the reason the first round of sanctions failed on the verge of being su successful was because Erdogan run NATO ally Turkey played the key role in undermining global attempts at sanctioning a 
state sponsor of terrorism. Now, what was really shocking at the court hearings in the Southern District of New York is that uh, when the, the, the ringleader of the sanctions evasion network, a Turkish-Iranian named Reza Zarab, approached the Chinese, offering them, hey, we can help you evade US sanctions. The Chinese said no. They didn't want to risk it. They were prudent. So that's the challenge. The Chinese, who we in the West see as an adversary, takes a look at the sanctions regime, and to a large extent, wants to play by. Maybe not because of values, but just out of deterrence. But then a NATO ally facilitates sanction, Iran sanctions evasion through its own institutions. Not only that, at least four ministers were on the payroll of this sanctions evasion, this evader, ringleader. So can you imagine? A NATO ally had a number of ministers on Iran's payroll. So I think, you know, I, I'll say no more, but that, that should give us an idea about how to deal with Erdogan and what happens if we fail to deal properly. It gets very dark, but would make a great movie. Many Turks fool themselves into saying, into believing that, oh, the Ottoman Empire was such a wonderful empire. All our former subject peoples missed the empire. Given their current problems, they all want to return to Ottoman rule. No. Now, what I can tell you from my travels in the Balkans, in the Middle East, that's not the case. Although, it's also true that some of Turkey's clients, these are people who are on Turkish payroll, on Turkish media payroll, government payroll, aid recipients, will they toe the line? Yes, I've seen it with my own eyes. When there are Turkish delegations in town with suitcases full of cash, people will tell you what you want to hear. Uh, they'll get that suitcase and that's the end of the story. But uh, what really matters is what they'll tell you, you know, informally. And as, a, as an anthropologist, in my, all, all my official visits to these countries, I've always afterwards sat with our local hosts and what I can tell with you is, from their point of view, it's crazy. Like, they can't even get it. They're, they're, they're like, they can't even imagine how and why Turks could have this misunderstanding. They, they want to hear nothing of this, especially because they probably have a family member, a grandfather or a great-grandfather, who suffered, who was executed, who, who was tried in fighting the, the Ottoman overlords. And uh, let me end with this, on, to end on a, on a positive kind of a anecdote that will put a smile on your face. You know, I was talking to a Latin American uh, economist, uh, an El Turco, I don't know if you know the term, in Latin America, many of the descendants of former Ottoman subjects are referred to as El Turco. And almost always they're not Turks. And almost always they're Arabs. Christian Arabs, Muslim Arabs, but Arabs who escaped the Ottomans. Many of them were Arab nationalists. And they didn't want to be ruled by the Ottomans. 
the ones who survived, they ended up in Latin America. So this economist was also one of those. And when I heard about his family background, Arab Christian, I said, oh, was your grandfather or great-grandfather one of those who suffered at the Turkish Sultan's hand? He said, you're the first Turk, he said, of my well-educated PhD-holding colleagues who said that because all my other colleagues tell me, oh, how wonderful it was for you as well in the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> and he said, he said, I really don't get it how all these smart Turkish academic colleagues know nothing about history and they imagine an eight, like a 19th century and an early 20th century where it was paradise uh, for the subject peoples of the Ottoman Empire. So today, I would argue, Erdogan imagines himself as the sultan, possibly maybe as the caliph as well, but the reality on the ground is very different than the reality not only Erdogan believes in, but most of my fellow Turkish citizens mistakenly come to hold. Thank you. Thank you very much.